Cummins family. All right. So, been recorded. Thanks. I met Moshe in my mom's house, in my mom's apartment on the, on the couch. He came over and shop this afternoon, and we hung out. And he was, he was a friend to, from that day on. Um, Moshe and I volunteered with Chaverim for a few years. And there was never a call that he wouldn't take and he wouldn't volunteer to step up and to do. He was the person who everyone should aspire to be. He was giving of himself to the point where you would say stop and he would just keep giving. And uh, he's someone who was very close to me. And when I went to look to see what to say about him, I looked at my phone, at my text messages, and he messaged me, happy birthday, last year on my birthday. And I messaged back, how are you? He didn't respond, because it wasn't about me, it was about me, it was my birthday. And that was the kind of person he always was. So thank you all for coming and giving yourself today to be here. So without further ado, Rev Motzen. Should I start this one? Thank you, Penny. And I uh, don't think I could add to that. Uh, clearly, he was a true friend to many people. And uh, our learning today is going to be Lilo Nishmaso in memory and for an elevation of his neshama. Um, we're going to be, first of all, I just want to thank Pinny and the Brotherhood for putting this together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and I want to thank there are many sponsors, and uh, I don't know all of them. You know who you are. Thank you. And I know all the proceeds uh, beyond the delicious spread that we have over here um, is going to the fund that was made for his children. So thank you. Uh, all those who participated, um, really appreciate it. So we're going to spend some time today talking about a specific song. Uh, for those of you who have been here the past couple of months, I've been talking about this individual, Yishai Rebo, quite a lot. Um, so I know many of you tried to look it up. Uh, tried to, some of you connected to the song, some of you less. Um, and we're going to just focus on one song and really use it as a springboard for a discussion about relationships with God and really a certain type of personality that I think many of you could relate to um, and I think would be very relevant to what we're, who we're memorializing today as well. So before we jump in, I just want to tell you who this man is. Who is Yishai Rebo? He's a young man. He was born in 1989 in France. Um, at a young age, he made Aliyah with his family. His, uh, he went to uh, both the Atilu Mi, religious Zionist schools, as well as Haredi schools and uh, in yeshivas, etc. And um, he is very much part of that Haredi world in many respects. On the side, he and his friends would jam a lot. They'd play a lot of music and would compose a lot. At a very young age, when he said he was about 13, he started composing songs. By the time he was like 16 or 17, he composed about 100 songs. Songs he would just play with his friends. And at one point, uh, you know, he had enough good songs, he decided to start publishing some music, recording some music, and his intent was to just attract and relate to the Haredi, the, the Orthodox community in Israel. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, well, it did happen, but a lot more happened. Uh, what happened is that in the process, he also somehow connected and touched many, many souls well out of the Haredi world. Right now, the number two musician in Israel, you know, in terms of songs, is Yishai Rebo. We're talking about an audience, uh, you know, the music world is not, as, as you know, in Israel, the population is not entirely Haredi. It's a small part of the, very small part of the population, and he has somehow been able to transcend every boundary with his music. Amazingly, his music is 
entirely spiritual music. You know, he says, I made a commitment at one point, I'm only going to compose and sing spiritual music. And it's songs which, it's not like you have to guess, is it about God, is it about his girlfriend, or something like that. It's, it's explicitly about Hashem. He is incorporating psukim. Um, it's a very, very spiritual and, and godly type of music. And yet it struck a strike, it's striking a very deep chord um, in the hearts of many, many, many Israelis. Uh, those who perhaps wouldn't otherwise consider themselves to have a relationship with God. There's something about this music which is compelling. Um, we're going to listen to one song in a moment. You'll see there's an incredible amount of sincerity, uh, vulnerability in his music. Um, something which seems to come across. He also seems to be a very humble person. And, um, and I think it's, to me, the reason I've been speaking about him so often and so much is because you know, something that educators speak about all the time. How do we teach spirituality? You know, how do you teach that? You can't, it's very hard to make, make a curriculum. Um, oftentimes, you know, you know, it's very, you know, we, and we spoke about this last week even. You know, we could talk about how to daven, but to really let a person into your inner life and to share that with other people, that's not so easy. And sometimes, frankly, when people do it, there's like a little bit of oversharing and you feel a little bit uncomfortable when people start talking about their relationship with God. I know I do sometimes. It's just like, whoa, 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 too much, too much. Um, and to strike that balance, we're able to welcome people into your inner experience and to do so in a, in a way that's stirring, but not again oversharing is a very, very fine art. And Yishai Rebo seems to have nailed it on the head. We're going to listen to one of his songs. It's called Halev Shali. You can follow along with uh, Hebrew lyrics. The translation is, uh, is a compilation of a number of, place, of, of, of different translators, myself included. Um, some poetic license in the translation, which you have in front of you. Uh, you'll see this song we're going to be listening to, his, this performance. It's Yishai Rebo, and the person he's performing with is not an orthodox individual. He's not wearing a kippah. And he's singing about psukim, a pasuk we just said, These are psukim that we say every day. It's about a relationship with God. And the person he is singing with is a superstar in Israeli music. And he is not an observant individual, right? And they're both singing the song together. It just speaks to the fact that this music has been able to transcend all boundaries. And so we'll watch that song right now. And then we are going to break the song down together. So, uh, Penny, thank you. Not that song a lot uh, in my head, at least. Uh, it's a beautiful song. Uh, one of the things they say about his songs is that there's a certain familiarity with his songs. It's almost like, wait, I know this from somewhere. No, he composed it. So uh, there is some something to that. So I want to just um, start the song really in the last few paragraphs. Uh, the last paragraph in the Hebrew, you'll notice. Um, where is it? My copy. There's an enemy that pains the sheep and no messenger to cry to the rock. Where, this is actually, the last line is actually where the song begins. In another uh, performance in uh, Caesarea, I think it is, uh, he goes ahead and he explains what, what was the inspiration for the song. The inspiration is a poem that is more well known in Israel. It's called Arba'a Amdu, that four stood. If you look on the other side, this is a poem by the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra is most famous for his commentary on the Torah. 
He is a Pashtan. He very much likes to stick to the simple explanation. Uh, he also was a very mystical individual, a very spiritual individual. Uh, he traveled for much of his life deliberately, um, like almost as a way of uh, self-imposing exile. And he also composed a lot of poetry, a whole lot of poetry. <clears throat> he was very good friends with uh, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, another great poet, you know, our, the greatest of poets in, in early Jewish history. And um, one other thing which is worth noting about Ibn Ezra is that one of his sons, uh, he had five sons. They assume, the historians assume that four of his sons died at a young age. With, and one son, his one remaining son, converted to Islam. And you could imagine, you see some of this expressed in his poetry throughout. There's a certain anguish and a certain pain uh, that he's able to capture. And presumably it's his you know, very challenging life experiences that in some ways is influencing uh, the writing of his. Now, this poem, as you'll see, he uses a bit of a tool where there's one letter that gets repeated over and over again, and that's the tzadi. Tzadik or tzadi, right? Uh, the tzadi is a very... Um, I don't know how to describe it better. It's not a strong letter. It's not a soft letter, right? There's like a kuf, which is a strong letter. There's an aleph and there's a yud, which are a light letter. And a tzadi is almost like a letter that's like sloshing through the mud. It basically has like, it's like a slow, like uh, dragging letter. That, that's the sounds of the letter. It doesn't flow off your tongue easily and doesn't have a strong sound either. And presumably, as you'll see, part of this song is about essentially being stuck. And so presumably for that reason, he specifically plays on the letter tzaddik over and over again as basically like it's trying to, it's like meant to be a slow song, not slow in the sense the tempo slow, but in the sense that it's kind of, you're schlepping something, you're trying to schlep out of something as you read this. So if you flip, turn over the page uh, to the other side, you'll see the original poem, which, um, Ibn, uh, which uh, Yishai Rebo says he bases this song upon, and it goes like this. He says, Arba amdu alayam, four stood by the sea. Tsur, which means the rock. Vitsir, which means the messenger. Tson means the sheep. Vitsar means the enemy. Okay? So what is he referring to? He's referring to the Jewish people at Kriyas Yamsuf. Four people at the sea are God, who is the rock. Tsir, which is the messenger, i.e. Moshe. Tzon, the sheep, i.e. the Jewish people. Vitsar and the enemy. Right? The tzadik, tzadik, tzadik. But these are the four which are standing at the, at the sea. Tsar hates secret zone. The enemy oppressed the sheep. Vitzon tsaak litzir, and the sheep cried out to the messenger. Vitzir chanan litzur, and the messenger pleaded with the rock, God. Vitzur tzivah litzir, and the rock then commanded the messenger. Tzay v'chalet tzoni miyad tzor, go and separate my sheep from their oppressor. Okay, go separate them from the oppressor. Um, which is interesting, you know, when we think of the splitting of the sea, chalets is like a, a separation. When we think of the splitting of the sea, we normally think of it going this way, uh, but there is something, there's another splitting that's taking place as the sea is being split. The Jewish people who were essentially born within the Egyptians, right? The nation came into being within the Egyptians. They are v'chalets, they're also being separated. The, the splitting is going in two directions. The Jewish people were very much attached to the Egyptians. They were tethered to Egypt. And God is saying, no, separate them from the Egyptians, right? So there's a splitting of the sea, but there's also a splitting that Ibn Ezra is alluding to, which is taking place between the people, the Jewish people and the Egyptians, separate them, separate from your enemy, become your own entity, okay? So splitting is going to be a major uh, focus in this, in this uh, discussion, okay? Zetsur, Yeshenu, this is the rock of our salvation. Patsu Fekhalenu, the Kihila, the congregation opened their mouth, the Amru, and they said, Hashem Alkenu, Hu Yoshienu, God our king, he will save us. Sur Yisrael, the rock of Israel. Okay, that is the poem 
which uh, Rebo said he saw this poem and he said, I have to make a song around this. And he wrote, and he says, you know, how do you make a song with a lot of tzaddiks? No, it doesn't work. It's a very bad sound. Um, so eventually he sat down and he composed this song. And at the end, he comes back to this passage. Okay, so let's just keep that, the, the imagery of Kriyas Yamsuf in the back of our mind. And now let's go through the song line by line. Okay, um, but essentially, if you wanted to understand what the song, of, what the Ibn Ezra's poem is all about, it's about utter dependence on God. It's about the Jewish people being stuck being overwhelmed, they turn to Moshe, who has to turn to God, and they have to be pushed away from the Egyptians, but there's a sense of standing by the sea and feeling overwhelmed, feeling stuck, and not knowing what to do, okay? So let's jump into the, into the poem, into the song itself. Halif Shili Nikralashnaim. Okay, my heart is torn into two. So immediately you see where he's playing with this, right? There is the Kriyas Yamsuf, and his heart is also split into two. Okay, what the maidservant didn't see by the sea, like the storm of the sea, it throbs, like Miriam's timbrel, a tambourine, it beats, and there's no cure in the world. Okay, so what, what's he describing over here? What our, our sages famously states that at Kriyas Yamsuf, at the splitting of the sea, a maidservant had a prophetic vision which was unparalleled. To the point that the Medrash says, that the Gemara says that what a maidservant, meaning the, the, the idea is that someone who didn't have a lot of stature, uh, they saw at Kriyas Yamsuf something which even the greatest of prophets were not able to experience. And what is that? What did they ultimately see? So the term Kriyas Yamsuf, the mystics explain, the word Kriya means what? Tear, right? We say Kriyas Yamsuf to split the sea, but the truth is it means to tear. And the mystics explain that at the Yamsuf, God tore away at the fabric of the world. In other words, we were able to see beyond nature. Normally, everything, we are, we are living in a world of a facade. God, we believe, is behind the scenes, but we don't see him. At Kriyas Yamsuf, at the splitting of, at the tearing of the sea, yes, there was a split, but in that miraculous moment, there was some vision where God, so to speak, parted all of nature, and he allowed them to see beyond nature. They were able to see the God who stands behind nature. He tore away at the fabric of the world so they could see what's behind it. Okay? Um, so over here, he's describing his own splitting. How his heart is broken. His heart is split into two. And, right, and what, what does he say? Right, is this, at this point, if we were to stop over here, is he describing something positive or something negative? Right? He's describing something, some, some breaking of the heart. Do you see that? Or splitting of the heart. Do you see in this opening paragraph a positive connotation, a negative connotation, other, anything? Negative. negative? In what way? Okay. 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 Excellent. Right. Right. So good. Excellent. So there is yes, Bruce. Right. But that possibility. What's that? Cure. Not a, a, a cure. Good. But I want and I want to pick up on that line. Okay. So again, the opening line is he's basically describing his heart torn at the sea, but he's also seeing what the maidservant didn't see by the sea. So again, that means that he's having a very intense experience. 
It's not just a broken experience or else the, the, no, the, the juxtaposition between the brokenness of the heart and the prophetic experience wouldn't make any sense. You're with me? We're going to analyze this song properly, right? So on the one hand, he's describing a brokenness of the heart, a splitting of the heart, not brokenness necessarily, but a, a ripping open of the heart. And at the same time, he's able to experience something very powerful, right? And then he says, it's like the storm of the sea, it throbs, like a timbrel, like a tambourine. Those are not necessarily negative emotions. There's no cure in the world. So again, we know the song in, in many respects is about God. Let, let's use it. There's an English term, which, which also translates into Hebrew, and that is love sickness. Okay? A feeling, what, what is love sickness? A feeling of, you know, infatuation and, and uh, desire, which is in some ways unmet, right? Is that a good emotion or a bad emotion? Right? It, it's, it, it's, it, it hurts, but it hurts in a very good way. Right? It hurts when you feel infatuated, when you feel like, like you're bursting at the seams for, for love for somebody, and, it, and it's unmet in some way. There's also something positive about that. There's something, I'm not sure positive, but it's, an, it's one of the most intense feelings that human beings experience, is it not? Right? That feeling is one of the most intense feelings, and, and we want to feel an intensity of that feeling. Right? There's something very, very real and alive about such an experience. So his heart is split open, and he is describing this incredible vision. It sounds like he's ultimately describing something with this at this point. I'm not sure if it's good or it's bad. It's, it's some form of love sickness. There is no cure in the world for it, but it not, isn't at this point necessarily good or bad. It's just an intense emotional and spiritual experience that he's describing over here, like a raging sea, like music, like powerful music. It's throbbing and it doesn't necessarily have a, a cure. It's something which is kind of unmet, but it isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just intense. And in some ways, that intensity is a positive thing. We like, right, there's something very um, invigorating about such an intense and real feeling. feeling. Yes? Uh, the two words that come to mind are, are complex and connection. Okay. So he, 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 describes, he describes something that is innately complex and something that we may not see on the surface, right? And, and yet that love sickness that we described is about a connection with someone, something, some but he doesn't necessarily go there, but in order for the love sickness, there is, you're sick for something, right. someone, some right. entity. Right, right, and he hasn't described for us, I'm going to, the spoiler alert is that he's clearly described, seems like he's describing a relationship with God, but you're right, he hasn't, he hasn't spelled that out just yet. So let's get to that next, the next line, because this is what unfortunately follows for many of us. And again, one of the things that I like about Rebo is his songs always have a progression. For anyone who listened to his song, Avoda, uh, which was a song about Yom Kippur, uh, there's a very clear progression. He, go, he transitions from one mood to another mood. Uh, his songs aren't just like low, high, low, high. Uh, there, ha there, there is some, some movement in the song, and then you're, again, it's supposed to be like a bit of a drama. It's supposed to bring you in. So let's see how, how the song progresses. Then my heart surrenders, right? Talev shali meirim yadayim. Literally means it lifts its hands up, but in Hebrew, that's another term for I surrender, right? I lift my hands up. Okay. For too long, I haven't stood on my feet. Um, a oh, did I skip a line? I did. I'm sorry. A broken utensil which has nothing in it. I'm sorry, I missed that in the translation. Right. So I'm a broken vessel which has nothing in it. I'm empty, and the heavens to me are like a wall. How can I pass through the waters on dry land? Okay, so what's he describing over here? I think this is a very real and authentic expression of an emotional experience. There is the intensity of that lovesickness. There's the intensity of that unmet feeling. But then the question is, what happens next? And for many people, what happens next is it's overwhelming. It's too much. 
When we have, you know, if we have an intense feeling, we want to give it expression. Whatever that feeling is, whenever we have a strong feeling, I always want to do something with it. We're not so good as humans at just holding on to that feeling. You know, I have something said it happened to me, right? There's something very enjoyable about holding on to it, just, just sitting with it, right? Because the second we share with someone else, it gets lost a little bit. We'll come back to that. But yet, what do we typically want to do? Share with somebody, right? We want to ah, do something. It's hard to hold on to intense feelings in as much as they are powerful. So because it's so hard, what oftentimes happens is that it's overwhelming, right? My heart surrenders. For too long, I haven't stood on my feet. The heavens are like, to me, a wall. It, it seems like he's overwhelmed. He's describing a sense of these strong emotions aren't finding expression, and therefore he's almost giving up, right? I, 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 the lovesickness, how long can I be lovesick without it feeling like I've actually connected? And so when I have that feeling of longing and it's not being met, what we sometimes do is we retreat. We say, forget it. You know, I've been on this exciting journey. I'm trying, I'm coming closer, but it's not going anywhere. I can't hold on to this feeling forever. And so we put our hands up and surrender and we throw it away. The walls are, the heavens are like too much for me. I can't cross the sea. I can't get to the next stage. I can't split. I can't go forward in the way I need to go forward. And therefore I give up. I want to go on a, just maybe take a step back for a second, and this will be a little bit of review from, from Shabbat Shuvah for those of you who um, were here, um, and that is this. On Shabbat Shuvah, one of the things I, I mentioned in passing, or not in passing, one of the things I focused on was this very mystical idea of there being two types of souls in the world. Uh, the mystics describe it as the soul of Yehuda and the soul of Yosef, or the soul of Leah and the soul of Rachel. Um, there is this, in, in, you know, there's this idea that there are some souls which have this incredible uh, sense of, of equanimity, of just being able to be calm and consistent, right? What is the terminology we give Yosef? What's his nickname? Yosef, huh? Sadik. Sadik is a perfect person. Yosef is consistent. Yosef always does the, like, exactly, more or less, what he's supposed to do. He is just a straight arrow. He doesn't deviate. And some people have that type of personality, where their life is just, not just, I don't say, I'm not saying this in a, in a negative way, their life is just, there's less drama. It's just, I know, I do, what's, I do what I need to do. I don't, you know, it, it's just a very, there's a certain consistency to that life. Um, and, it's, and it's beautiful, and it's very special, and it's, a very, it's one way of living, okay? Uh, very much relates to Rachel, Yosef's mother, which in some ways was unchanging, if you look into the story of her life. There is the Yehuda character, which stands in uh, opposite that of Yosef, who goes through major changes, right? He's the one who deviates from the family. He's the one who really was part of the sale, deviates from the family, um, involves himself in some pretty questionable things, and eventually is able to turn his life around and has a major change in his life. Yehuda is seen as the quintessential Baal Tshuva. He's the one who's able to turn his life around. And who is his descendant? King David, right? What does David and Melech stand for? If not, He is the quintessential uh, person who's able to change his life, to radically change his life. But also one thing that comes out of King David, of David and Melech, is his ridiculously wide emotional repertoire. His language for emotional uh, experiences is beyond broad, right? Throughout the past two, I don't know, 3,000 years, almost any religious person has been, or non-religious person, has been able to find themselves into Tehillim, right? David Amalek is so capable of capturing those euphoric highs and those terrible lows and everything in between. David Amalek, again, it's that, it's a wild and violent life in David Amalek's world. If you were to psychoanalyze him for a moment, he very much is that soul, um, you know, the, the term that some use is a soul of chaos. It's a soul of intense lows and intense highs. It's a soul that doesn't ever rest. It's a soul that's always 
throbbing like the sea and is always drumming like that tambourine. It never is calm, as opposed to the tzaddik who lives that calm and peaceful life. There are the Yehudas in the world. There are the Zavad in the world. There are those whose life is never calm and is never consistent. Um, I know it's going to sound a little strange. I want to share with you something that um, Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld, if you're going to listen to one Jewish podcast, I would say listen to Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld. He's a therapist out of, he's, a, he's an addiction therapist actually out of St. Louis. Uh, very, very profound thinker, young, young guy. Um, he was actually featured on the front of Mishpacha magazine, of all magazines, uh, a little while ago. Um, but anyway, he has a tremendous, tremendous uh, listening base, not in St. Louis, uh, around the world. He's, he's, he's very interesting. His uh, profession is he's an addictions therapist, and he very much incorporates a lot of Jewish philosophy and mysticism into his, into his teachings in a, in a very neutral way. His clientele is not Jewish, uh, in any, uh, but, but something which is very much part of his uh, general philosophy, and he's a bit of a philosopher. And one thing that he describes, again, we have to be, I'm, I'm, I want to be careful, I'm not describing a clinical uh, suggestion over here of any sort, but more philosophically, you know, he describes in a very, I'm going to speak very abstractly, so please bear with me. I'm not speaking about any particular situation or person, but more abstractly, he describes the, the, the inner life or the neshama of someone who, for whatever reason, turns to substances. And he says, very often, there is the soul of the soul of chaos. It is a soul that is not content, who can't just sit peacefully and, can't, and, and is constantly in going back and forth, vastly through these intense emotions and recognizing the brokenness of the world. In other words, the tzaddik, the person who lives that calm life, is, is calm and sees in the world a certain calmness and it's okay and things are okay. The Yehudas of the world, the David Amalek's of the world, the souls of chaos, are people who are constantly recognizing in their own lives and the world around them a certain incompleteness. Like nothing is fit, nothing, everything is still broken. I'm broken, the world around is broken, and it's, it's, there's an incredible amount of tension that exists there. Right? Um, and, and if, you, if you're constantly vastly between these deep emotions in your own life, or you're constantly seeing in the world a sense of incompletion, that's a very intense feeling of, uh, and it's, it's an empty, it's a feeling which doesn't have expression. Again, it's that, that heart split into two, which doesn't have a place and a, and a way to ever come to a sense of, I'm here, a sense of completion, a sense of arrival. And so what sometimes people will do because of that is there, there's a need to make it perfect. There's a need to transcend the brokenness of the world. And so we all, on some level, will turn to something to almost distract us, or not just distract us, not the right word, but to find the completion there, to be able to find something which makes us whole until we come back and realize the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of ourselves. So in some ways, this experience that, that Rebo is describing on some level is the sense of you know, giving up, the sense of my heart surrenders, I can't deal with incompletion. So we're going to go in one of many directions. I'm going to turn to X, to Y, to Z, on a, you know, and we all on, or live on this continuum in some way. You know, I can't deal with the silence, I can't deal with the discomfort, I'll turn to my phone. That's benign, but we're on the spectrum. We're somewhere there, we're turning to something which is going to make us whole, something which will make us some pleasure, which will make us feel complete, right? When do we oftentimes turn to things which are more pleasurable? When, when we, we feel like lost or stuck. I need a distraction. And again, it's not almost distraction. It's deeper than that. It's about finding something that gives us even a fleeting sense of wholeness, just for a moment. That's one way of dealing with it. Alternatively, the opposite extreme is basically that crash of saying, I just give up because I can't find that completion. And so with that in mind, let's go to the chorus now. And I think, if I may, just try to understand what, what, the, what the chorus is actually saying. So we turn, the chorus goes like this. V'rakata yachol la'afoch misbedila machol. 
Okay, so he's riffing on a chapter in Tehillim, and he's saying, only you could turn my mourning into a dance, to purify the mundane, to soften everything in me, and only you understand how to approach my heart. I forget all my pain, you heal the heart. Okay, so what is his resolution? What is his resolution? He feels broken, whether it's about God or whether it's about anything at all. But there's a sense of, uh, I need something more and I, I'm not getting it. I feel incomplete. I feel stuck. I feel bewildered. I feel confused. Ultimately, what he does is he turns to God and he says, only you could heal me. Only you could change me. And that in and of itself, that recognition, I would argue, is the resolution. And, and maybe to explain that for a moment, Rav Soloveitchik has a, a beautiful and powerful piece in his book, Out of the Whirlwind, where he describes... Um, a moment in his life where he had to go undergo some very dangerous treatment, some surgery. And he describes how his family came to visit him right before he went into treatment. And he hugs them and he kisses them and he gives them brachos. Everyone knows this may be the last time he sees his, his family. And he describes that after they left, he says, for the first time in my life, he says, I was able to understand the Pasuk that we said during the month of Elul. Ki avi ve'imi azavuni that my mother and father have left me. And he said, you know, I've always been puzzled by this. What kind of sick comment is that? You know, my mother and my father left me? Really? Is there, you know, is that really how David Amalek felt? That his mother and father completely disregarded him and just completely left him alone? That they really left him? That doesn't make any sense. So he suggests it doesn't mean that they literally left him. They presumably loved him. And they are presumably the people who loved him more than anyone else. They're his parents after all, hopefully. But what he says is that there is this moment where we realize that even those most close to us cannot fully understand us, cannot fully appreciate, again, we spoke about this on Shabbos a little bit, cannot fully identify with the deep emotions that we're experiencing. So he's taking the people who in theory are the ones who love us the most in our lives and they left me behind. But it doesn't mean they actively left me behind, but there is a sense of deep dread and loneliness that the people in my life who are supposed to love me the most, I don't feel connected to them. And what's the next line? Vashem Yasveni. He recognizes in his own poetic words, or Soloveitchik, he writes that this lonely being is able to connect to the other only lo- lone being. That the only being that could fully comprehend the depth of our emotions is Hashem. Because no person, no matter how much they love us, no matter how much they get us, no matter how close we are to them, will ever be able to fully experience and appreciate those deep emotions that we experience. And the knowledge, and here's the key, the knowledge that Hashem, that there is a being out there that could appreciate that, in and of itself, is the resolution. In other words, God doesn't come down and pat me on the back and say, hey, feel better. No. It's the idea, it's the recognition It's the notion that you, Hashem, have that ability to turn things around. Only you understand me. Only you are the one who I'm able to connect to. And what that ultimately means, to our point before, is that I'm able to live with that tension. Right? I don't need a resolution. I don't need life will never, if you are one of those special people who have that more chaotic soul, um, okay? If you are one of those people who have those deep and raging emotions like the sea and like the drum, there will never be a moment of, ah, I'm here, life is calm. No. It's being able to embrace that uncertainty and that chaos and that friction and tension. And the way that he does so is ultimately just embracing God in that sense of loneliness and that sense of tension. And therefore, it's not resolved. It's not change. It's just God. You're the only one who understands this deep emotion, period. 
Is this making sense in any way? I'm not resolving it. I cannot change it. That's who I am. And you know what? It's a beautiful thing. When we stop running away from that tension, we embrace it a little more. When we stop running away from that sense of, of feeling so uneasy and instead we embrace that, but what we're, what we're of Soloveitchik and what Yishai Rebo, I think, is suggesting is that when we do so in the embrace of God, it's a little bit less lonely. It's a little bit less tense and a little bit less scary because there is a being who understands the intensity of our personal experience. And so we find some expression, not resolution, but some expression for that deep, deep feeling. Okay, let's keep on reading. And here again, we have a, a transition. Oh boy. Okay, so my heart is torn into two. Half is guilty, and here you have to read the Hebrew because it's just much more. Chetzio Hashem v'chetzio l'shem shamayim. Okay, again, just uh, more poetic. Half of my heart is guilty. Half of my heart is for Hashem. Like the storm of the sea, it throbs. Like Miriam's trimble, excuse me, timbrel, it beats, and there's no cure in the world. So again, he goes back to the initial statement, but here he goes a little bit deeper and a little bit more self-aware. You know, what is it that's causing us to feel that tension? Right? The first time we just described a tension, a broken heart, not, not in our sense of broken heart like we usually describe it, but a sense of, of, of feeling fractured, a sense of feeling incomplete, a sense of feeling uneasy. But now he goes a little bit deeper and he gets to why is that? And part of that is my guilt. Part of that, right, the reason I'm feeling this ra- these raging feelings isn't only just because, but part of it is the fact that I'm being pulled into, on the one hand, I'm feeling pulled away from Hashem, I feel guilty, I'm afraid to talk to him, I feel bad about myself. And at the same time, the Shem Shemaim, there's a part of me that wants to come close, right? The, the tension is now, he's exploring, he's understanding the tension. And we think and ask ourselves, why do I feel that back and forth and that distance from Hashem and that uneasiness? Part of it has to do with our own guilt and our own way of perceiving what we're doing and what we're not doing and appreciating why we're feeling that tension, okay? And so in doing so, he then he moves up, he goes back to the chorus, which we're, we're not going to read again. Um, but then he ultimately concludes with the following final statement. And that is, and here he goes back to the poem of Ibn Ezra, and he says, there's an enemy that pains the sheep, right? Okay, so what he's doing, okay, let's, let's finish the, the statement. But there's no messenger to cry to the rock. It's just me facing the sea with a broken heart, right? So what he does now is he takes his personal struggle and incorporates it into our history. He sees his struggle as part of Kriyas Yamsuf, but it's much more pathetic because there is no messenger to turn to. To turn, and that messenger, therefore, will not be able to turn to God. And instead of being there with all the other tzon, all the other sheep, it's rakani mulyam shalem v'lev shabur. It's just me. I'm all alone in front of this raging, powerful sea. And so, in doing so, what he's ultimately coming to is this sense of recognizing how alone he is, how broken he is. And, you know, as the Kutzko Rebbe says, there is nothing as whole as a broken heart. Because in recognizing that sense of utter dependence and utter brokenness, you know, the, the laws of purity and impurity. You know, there's a law that when something is impure, if my cup over here were to be impure, okay, in biblical times, um, so one way of I would have to either immerse it or do something to purify it, I could also just break it in half. When it's broken in half, then actually the impurity leaves it, right? And that's true on a mystical level as well, on a personal level, when we are able to rip ourselves open, right? The kriyat yamsuf when we're really able to make ourselves totally vulnerable and recognize that it's just us and recognize that we have no one to turn to except for God, 
because we're all alone. We don't have the Moshe to turn to. We don't have the other people with us. It's ultimately just us. And we allow that, we allow ourselves to feel that vulnerability. And we literally do Kriyat Yamsuf to ourselves. Again, it's the, not the splitting, but the ripping away of the fabric of my heart and just allowing myself to be vulnerable like that. Then in that experience, I'm ultimately, be, I'm ultimately able to connect to God in a way far more profound than anything else. In other words, the, the most direct pathway to a sense of closeness to Hashem is when we allow ourselves to feel that intense vulnerability, the sense that we don't have someone to hold our hands, although hopefully we do, but on some level we don't, that sense of feeling of deep loneliness, to recognize that it's just us imagining ourselves solely, fully standing in front of this raging, not sea that will drown us physically, but these raging emotions that are potentially could take us down to the point that I feel like there's no way of Trevor, you know, of, of Tra- uh, transcending the, the waters so I could reach to heaven? No. Instead, the re- second I recognize how alone I am, the second I stop trying to go in that direction, I just open myself, the more that will allow Hashem, Rak Hashem, only God, to be able to turn to us and be able to redeem us and allow us to give us some comfort in that sense of intensity and that sense of loneliness. That's my understanding of the song. Um, Penny, maybe let's listen to the song one more time now that we have some. Uh, yes, yes, we'll take this.